Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In this episode, I offer commentary on a book by an anonymous poet that is commonly and probably correctly attributed to Jeremiah, the Book of Lamentations. I'm posting this at the beginning of the year. Now, at first, that may seem like a downer doing lamentations in the new year. But in the wisdom of the Hebrew Bible, this should be the perfect meditation for the new year. For as it says in Ecclesiastes 7, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And besides this, at the center of this book of sorrows, there is one of the most stirring promises that we will need to rely on and believe in and see the reality of throughout the year. So let's begin. Let's see if we can get some grip on the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is one of those books that uh, most Christians particularly just sort of, yeah, there it is, and then, you know, we do, you know, fly. It's, it's one of those things that takes up pages in the Bible that, but, you know, we, it's what uh, somebody called usually in the sticky pages of the Bible. Those are the ones that haven't been opened yet, you know. Because who wants to read a book called Lamentations? Truth is, it's a tough book. The, it actually has a liturgical use in the Jewish synagogue. Uh, it is read once a year in commemoration of the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 587. And it apparently is, it was constructed for that very use. It was constructed for the use of being a memorial. Constructed, written, so that the, the impact, the tragedy, the horror, the grief the devastation, the spiritual devastation of this time and this moment would be kept and would not be forgotten. Because folks, it doesn't matter how, you know, I know you know where you were on 9-11. We've got children and grandchildren who, for whom that either was a, just something that happened one day or they, didn't need, they weren't even born then. And things like this, unless it is passed on, doesn't get remembered. We try to forget these things. And the book of Lamentations is put in there so that we will not forget. There is something very important and very powerful about what happened in 587 BC when the Babylonians came and wiped out Jerusalem and completely demolished the temple, the glorious temple built by Solomon and then for the name of the Lord. And we have seen all through this time, we've read the, we've read the books of Kings and we saw it coming. And we've just been through the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and we've understood all of this and we've seen it coming and then we, you know, we saw it happen. Why Lamentations? Lamentations is so that we won't forget. There are things in this book that are written specifically in order to impress us and bring us who weren't there in that moment, into that moment, so we can abide there with those who are suffering 
and we can suffer with them and with them experience the same kind of chastening from God that they were experiencing so that we won't have to go through the actual experience of it. The Hebrew name for this book, as it is for most of the books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, is taken from the first word of the book. In Hebrew, the first word of this book is Eka. What is your first word in English? How. That's the, that's the Hebrew title of the book. I was just reflecting, and Al and I were talking last night about this, and, and just reflecting on this, what a powerful exclamation that is. I mean, think of that as, as just being the title of the That is the title of the book. How? And that, you, that very word, how, can be followed up with so many questions and so many exclamations, and yet it can also just stand by itself as just with... with a powerful, simple, profound, even inexpressible meaning. How? And in the devastation of Jerusalem and the terrible after effects, the Babylonian army has gone, except, you know, there are detachments here and there, and probably, you know, just those that are left behind, and usually those are the ones that are not well disciplined. And so they are the ones who are wreaking havoc. They're basically acting the part of bandits. And you've got lawlessness. They're, they're, you've, you've got all of the, the terrible effects. You've got hunger. You've, you've got the remember of the, of the terrible famine of the, during the siege. And the, you've got hunger and thirst. And you've got injustice and robbery. And there's rape and pillage and total devastation of everything that you once called home and blessed. And looking at that, just looking at the aftermath of all of that and standing in the middle of the ruin and saying, how? And that's how this book begins and that's how All but the last chapter begins. How? How lonely sits the city that was full of people? What can you say? You just look around and you know, you've, you've got a city that was just swimming with people. A mere weeks ago, full of people, stacked with people, and right now it's just the creepiest thing about it is it's just empty. Nobody's home. Nobody's there. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Remember in the book of Jeremiah, this imagery of... Uh, Judah looking for other lovers, you know, going after lovers and going after, you know, the, uh, looking for allies and looking for allies among false gods and so forth. And you, you have this, this whole theme. And this is one of those themes of the prophets. And one of the major themes of the book of Jeremiah is the theme of spiritual adultery. And you see that developed here. All her friends have dealt treacherously with it. They've become her enemies. How, didn't you see this coming? Uh, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Verse 5, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, I have chosen you and you among my people. If you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be the head and not the tail. But if you disobey me and violate the terms of my covenant and break my laws, I will make you the tail, and the others shall be the head over you. And that very expression from Deuteronomy is in that verse. Her foes have become the head, 
or enemies prosper. Because, see, this doesn't just happen. We've got to stop thinking humanistically. We've got to stop thinking the rest of the world can think humanistically. They think that all of these things are man-made issues. All of these disasters are merely man-made disasters. All of these things are the things that men do. And there is no other influence. There is nothing else out there. This is just we are alone in the universe. And this is just what? That's just the way it is. These are the ways of the world. It's just mere cause and effect. Know that there is a cause outside of the causes of human cause. And we've got to remember that. Because nobody else in our culture does. Our whole culture is like the culture of Judah. We have forgotten who God is. We have left Him behind. We've gone after others. Culturally. Socially. And our, our society, it doesn't matter what people believe religiously, in terms of the way they live their lives, they do not live their lives as though there is a God who is there. We must. Why did this happen? Because the Lord has afflicted her for her multiple transgressions. We don't want to hear that. You try to bring that up in public discussion today, you will be shouted down like you were an idiot, a fool, and a villain for even bringing it up the subject. God doesn't punish anybody. And then they complain about how much evil is there is in the world, and why doesn't God do something? If there is a God, why doesn't He do something? They complain about the evil, and yet when you say that God is going to bring judgment, they say, oh, how can you bring up such a thing? People, the people of our time are schizophrenic. They do not know what they want to hear. It's one or the other. Do you want to hear that, that God deals with iniquity, or that he, there is no God to deal with iniquity? Which one of those do you want to hear? Neither one. Look down at verse 6. Excuse me, verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her now, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and her fa- turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comfort. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. There is again this image of spiritual adultery. And this whole idea, the, this impartation, and it is, like, it is like sexual uncleanness. It's like, you know, here's a woman who, she was a princess. She was a classy lady. Everybody in town respected her. She turned into a whore. And now everyone despises her. All the lovers that she took in now despise her. And that's the way it is. Her enemy has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. She's seen the nations enter. She has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. Now, this is an interesting thing. Even in the days in which the temple was being defiled by bringing idols into the temple, common people still could not enter the temple. They brought idols in that defiled the temple, but the common people were not allowed to enter, only the priests. Until the Babylonians came. And then here you have the Babylonians. And all of these Gentiles coming in and just running all over the place. And running roughshod. And handling holy things as though they were just ordinary vessels. And you've got this horror of that. And this... How could this happen? How? Verse 12. Is it nothing to all you who pass by? Now this is, this is a, a personification of Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem personified and speaking to all of the nations of the world. It's not like people were walking and taking a tour of Jerusalem or anything like that or just walking by and saying that. Ah. But it's, it's as though Jerusalem is addressing the nations of the world. Jerusalem is addressing the population of the rest of the world. And 
people who knew what was going on here, but they didn't care. And think about that. Think of all of the disasters in the world that are going on right now. Think of there are places in the world where there, are, where there is dire famine. We don't know about it. If we did know about it, it probably, our care overload is already pretty much up here, pretty, isn't it? Jerusalem is, is personified looking in, in the midst of the devastation around and say, is it nothing to you who pass by? Is this nothing to you? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his anger. For from on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He's left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were... Now look at, look at what's taken place here. This is, this is a picture of what happens when God decides, okay, you've gone far enough. He says, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. I want you to contemplate the horror of what would happen. If the grace of God were to be withdrawn from your life and he were instead to take your sins and to make them into a yoke and chain you to them. That's what's being described here. So this is what God has done. We ignored him all these years and we thought it's no big deal. These sins of ours, they're no big deal. We're now finding out what happens when our sins are attached to us and we've got to bear them. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in his midst. The verse, end of verse 15, the Lord has trodden us as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Jerusalem, of Judah. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. God commanded that. God directed that and said, now, is this an accusation against God? Look at verse 18. No, the Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. Verse 19, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. The people who, who always had plenty, didn't matter what the disaster was, these were the people who always had enough. They were reduced to beggars. Look, O oh Lord, for I'm distressed, for I'm in distress. O oh God, look, see. All my enemies, verse 21, all of my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you've done they are glad that you've done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you, all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them as you've dealt with me because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. You can understand that. God. All this has come upon us, but we messed up. We deserve it. But God, it's not right what they did to us. Don't let them go unpunished either. Now, just pause for a second. A word about the poetry here. There are certain things that do not come across. You can see, even in this, just the anguish. You can, you can hear... The, the passion and the emotion of this. Unfortunately, there are some things about poetry in any language that do not translate into, into another language. And there are some aspects of Hebrew poetry that do translate well. One of them is that feature of parallelism, this idea of parallel thought. You've got a line and then a line that is, uh, is parallel to that and then another line. In this case, you've got triplets but you've got, you've got that kind of thing. One thing that doesn't translate well, but is a strong feature of this, this is a highly sophisticated poem. This is not free verse. Sometimes the way we read this, it's kind of like free verse in English. It's just, you know, it's just 
out there. It's, it's, it's uh, sort of a running commentary. Not so. This is highly organized. In English, we have certain very organized forms of poetry. For example, the sonnet, which is of so many lines of iambic pentameter and everything, you know, it's very highly structured. This is very highly structured poetry in Hebrew. It is an acrostic. All of the five chapters, four of them are in alphabetic order and each verse, each line begins with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's very much like Psalm 119, which is an acrostic, an alphabetic acrostic. So this is. This is an alphabetic acrostic. It's very, very sophisticated. Uh, very highly structured. And it's also written in a particular meter. The, uh, those who study this call this the Kina meter. And it is, it is the meter of a lament. It is a traditional meter of a lament. Now, what is that? Okay, we're choir and orchestra. You know, we can kind of understand counting and meter and like this. And the meter of this in Hebrew comes out like one, two, three, one, two. One, two, three, one, two. Now, you just think about that. It's, it's the halting steps of somebody who is following in a funeral procession. step of someone who is in great emotional upheaval and yet this is put into a form so that it can express and bring out something that isn't merely individual but it's universal again this was written so that people would never forget now that first chapter. And by the way, each one, you've got chapter one, you've got a poem. And there are, you notice there are 22 verses. There are different numbers of lines in the verses, and you can see those are all, those all line up too. If you put them back to back, chapters one, two, three, four, and five, and you just kind of look at them, it's, it evens out in the number of lines. That's also, it's part of the structure. It's put together in a very intricate way. Chapter one, that first lament, you've just got the, the picture of the devastation and along with that, the confession. Look at what's happened. How could this have happened? We messed up. We deserve this. Second one, the focus is on God did this. Don't make any mistake. Babylonians, they were the hand. But God was the cause. Look at it. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Okay, you see that first verse begins very much like the first verse of chapter 1. How? But what was the first verse in chapter 1? How? city deserted, once filled with people now deserted now how has the Lord in his anger set the daughter of Zion under clay it's an exclamation it's not a question it's an exclamation it's not a question he's not asking for an explanation he's just looking at it and he's standing in amazement as if I knew God was powerful and I knew he was angry. But wow. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. God took the splendor of Israel. He had lifted us up to the heaven. And he has thrown it down. 
verse 2, the end of verse 2, he has brought down to the ground in dishonor its ki- the kingdom and its rulers. Verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. Verse 7, the Lord has scorned his altar and disowned his sanctuary. Understand what that means? All of this, this is a response. All of this time, the people of Judah had been confident, oh, God will come through for us. He always has. Why? Because the temple is here. This is his... His temple is here. What have you done with His temple? What have you done with His laws? He doesn't care about this temple. When it came down to it, God told the Babylonians, I don't care anything. You can do whatever you want to do with that temple. I have no claim on it whatsoever. He has despised it. He scorned it. He turned his back on the sacrifices that were sent up to attract his attention. It's the, the acrostic thing. Uh, does, it, does it add emphasis that in each of these situations about the city, about God, and so forth, it's like the writer is covering it from A to Z? There is that. There is that. Everything is in, in different chapters have more verses. One has two, mm-hmm. one has three, excuse me, not verses, but lines uh-huh. in the acrostic. It, it kind of builds emphasis. It builds emphasis. And yet when you get down to it, it, it also evens out. And there is... Yeah. what he says in verse 8 the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion here's a it's a um, an image that was first used by Amos Amos had a vision of the plumb line now the plumb line was used by builders at the time still used by builders in building a wall to see if the wall is straight the wall would be built so high, plumb line would be dropped. If the, if the plumb line swung away from the wall, you know what? Didn't matter how much work, how much time, how much effort was to put into it, that wall would be torn down because it was going to fall anyway. He stretched out the measuring line and he did not restrain his hand from destroying. Verse 9, her king and her prince and princes are among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The kings and the princes, we know, I mean, it's just, they became worthless in terms of their leadership because they were seeking their own wealth and power and not seeking the good of the people. So they were worthless. The priests... We're no longer teaching people the ways of the Lord. They were basically making their living as professional sacrifice offerers. They were worthless. The prophets were the most worthless of all. Because these were the people who were intended by God to bring correction and instruction and to, to stir up the rulers and the people so that they would rule right and lead right and stir up the priests so that they would teach the people correctly 
and to stir up the people so that they would hear the law and understand the judgments of God and understand that God is righteous and He is God and there is no other. And the prophets instead decided, no, it's easier to make a living by telling people what they want to hear. We can get more love offerings that way. And they became worthless. And what happens when a prophet decides that he's not going to preach the vision of God? God takes away the vision. You can preach your own thing. And it's worth just that much. And the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground of silence, sit on the ground in silence, and the young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads on the ground. Basically, you've got the elders and the young maidens. Now, these are people who do not socialize together. But right now, they've got one common activity. They're all in mourning. No, none of them at this point. None of them have hope. Verse 11, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile, actually, that the literal expression is there. It's a very vivid Hebrew expression. My liver is poured out. It's the only time that phrase is ever used anywhere in the Bible. Some of your translations say my heart is poured out. We know we don't, but I mean, it just... My whole, my whole insides. You know when you're under stress how your insides are turned over. And that's, that, this is an expression, a very vivid expression of all of that. And my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. And you look and, and you're just crushed to see the suffering of the children. Verse 13, for your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your wound is as deep as the sea is another way of translating that. How can you be healed? How indeed? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They haven't exposed your iniquity to destroy your fortune, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we've swallowed her, all this. Ah, this is the day we long for now, we have it, now we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. That's the hardest truth of all. Isn't it? The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exult in the might of your foes. Their heart cried out to the Lord. The, oh, or that, that's a difficult to translate there. It's poetry. It could say, let your heart cry out to the Lord. O wail, O wall of the daughter of Zion. The wall of the daughter of Zion. Cry out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion. Cry out to the Lord. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Your eyes no respite. Arise. Cry out in the night. The beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. There's nobody else to pray. There's no watchman to stand on the wall. So wall what there is left of you. Wall, we need you to pray. Think about the power of that thought. There's no one left to keep watch. No one left to stand watch. No one left to pray. Wall, you're going to have to do the job. What there is left of you. Oh Lord, look and see. Then he just cries out, Oh Lord, look and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Verse 22, You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. and the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. 
Did you hear what he said? He said, God, you summoned everything that terrified me as if it's time for the party. Go. Wow. Now, don't forget the power of this. Remember chapter one. Look at the devastation. Look at the totality of the devastation. Chapter two. Don't make any mistake. God did this. In chapter 1, there's the confession. Yes, we deserved it. Chapter 2, there's the acknowledgement. Yes, Lord, we deserved it. But, God, this really hurts. Is it okay to be honest with God about how you feel? You might as well be. You're not going to fool anybody. Yeah, he already knows it. He already knows. Go ahead and tell him. And if you're angry with God, don't hold that back from him. God knows how to deal with your anger. And sometimes he may rebuke it. Put on your big boy pants and deal with it. But be honest with God. Always. And that's also what you see in this, in this great book of Lamentations. Is this just pure honesty with God. Not going to soften anything. We'll be honest with you and we'll be honest. Because at this point in the, in the life of Jerusalem, there's no point in not being honest. Everything's gone. God's taken away everything else. This is just like Job, except unlike Job, there's this sense, yeah, we messed up and we deserve this. Job was completely perplexed. He didn't mess up and he, he didn't know why he was getting this. But here's the acknowledgement. Yeah, we messed up. We deserve this. Now you've got chapter 3. And chapter 3 moves into a different mode because chapter 3 goes into first person, not from the point of view of Jerusalem, but to the point of admonishing these people. And there's this first person testimony here. Okay, let's see what goes on here. I am the man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Verse 6, he's made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy and though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my path crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. So you've got two different sides of a coin there. So first of all, God has deserted me. Second, He's chained me up so that I can't go anywhere. Third, He's attacking me. Can it get much worse? <laughs> Verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Verse 21. But I call this to mind. And therefore I have hope. Hold it. What he's just said. So far. In this poem is. I have gone as low as anybody can go. And it's as though all the lights are out. The only thing left is for me just to roll up and die. But I'm remembering something that was true. And something that's still true and something that has to be true. Even if everything else proves to be a lie. And because of one truth that I know, I have hope. What do you hang on to when you have no other hope? Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great. Is your faithfulness. The word translated love there, almost every of our translation is the word, it's the Hebrew word chesed. 
This is that word that basically comes. It's, it's God's covenant commitment to us. It's a word that's used very much of God and his attitude toward his people in his covenant. I've chosen you. I've claimed you. I've called you by my name. You're special to me. Not because of anything that you've done, but because I've chosen you. And it's not because of who you are, but because of who I am, that I am going to hold on to you forever. You change. You're fickle. You're inconstant. You're unfaithful. But I don't change. And I am always faithful. The reason you've come into the predicament that you are in now is because... I was faithful to my word. I did exactly everything that I said I was going to do. It is not because I was unfaithful to you that you were in this predicament. It's because of my faithfulness to you. And because of my faithfulness to you, you have a reason for hope. That's what he says here. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. What does that sound like? That remind you of anybody? Any remind you of anything? Something like that, yeah? Wonder where Jesus got that scripturally. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. In the midst of all of this, there is the affirmation. Not only God is God and we're not. God is good. Now His goodness can be a terror to us in our badness. Understand that. Nevertheless, when we've come into the judgment for our badness... His goodness now becomes our comfort. Now look at verse 37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways. thing that we fail to do all of this time... All of these decades, all of these generations, all of these centuries, the one thing we fail to do, doesn't matter who the prophets were or whatever, I mean, we did maybe from time to time we'd do that, but we just, as a nation, we just fail to really come to grips with this. Let's do it now. Let's examine and test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let's lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven Verse 49, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. Verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You've taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. Chapter 4. Now there's another review of the devastation of Jerusalem. In chapter 4. But it is... It's much more focused. This is... As it were, this, this, these are the people taking up, okay, I'm going to listen to what, to what the one who has given us testimony. We're going, we're going, I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to come to grips with what I've done and what has brought us to this point. 
So the lament goes, verse 6, For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. Why? Sodom was overthrown in a moment. No hands were wrung for her. You know, nobody had time to grieve or lament for Sodom. But this goes on and on and on. Verse 13, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. And then at the end of it all, there, there's this review again of uh, going through again the sufferings of Jerusalem but from a much more personal standpoint and just looking at this very vividly drawn. And then it, there's an abrupt change, and yet it's still within the acrostic format. It keeps and carries that forward. And so this was not just something that was stuck on. All of a sudden there's an abrupt change, and there is a curse on the nation of Edom. And look what it says. It says... You Edomites. Now what happened in Edom? Edom actually allied with the Babylonians. And the Babylonians rewarded them and gave them some Judean territory. So the Edomites were living pretty high at this point. They were thinking, we're good. And you guys have gone down. And they were happy. They were rejoicing. They were rejoicing over the suffering of Jerusalem. Now, here's, a, here's, the de here's the deal. Back in the book of Proverbs, the Lord gave wisdom that admonished folks. That when your enemy suffers, don't rejoice. God may see it and say, you know, you don't have any reason to rejoice over them. And he will lift them up. Now, that's a word of commandment that he, and a word of wisdom that he gave to his own people. So these Edomites, and they don't have any claim on the covenant of God, says, oh, you go ahead and rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. But to you the also the cup shall pass, and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. Then we get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 all of a sudden goes and it moves into just rapid fire. You've got, you've got this staccato lines. It changes. It's not an acrostic, but it still has the same number of, of lines as there are letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so you've still got that basic pattern, but now we're not in the acrostic anymore because now we are, and now we have a different rhythm. Now it's not that, that rhythm of uh, that the, the rhythm of the lament. Now it's these short, choppy lines in a staccato fashion. What we have here is now we're praying. Now we're crying out to God. This, this is a cry out to God from someone who is in the midst of profound suffering and devastation. Remember, O oh Lord, what has befallen us. Look back and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our neck. We're weary. We're given no rest. We've, been, we've given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Now, this is not we're paying for their sins. It's we are experiencing the consequences of sins that have been accumulating over generations. Verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. And then this challenge to the Lord. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? 
Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew us as in days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us. And you remain angry without measure against us. What is this? This is someone from the depths who sees no light at the end of the tunnel. Okay? But he knows there's a light out there. Can you still pray when you don't see the light but you know it's out there? Sure. Yeah. Now here's the deal. Here's the hope of someone who has no hope. At some point, God forbid that you ever be here and ever be in any as devastating as the position as this. But if you ever are, remember something. Even if you've gotten there by your own fault. I want you to consider this. It is because of His mercy that we are not consumed. Ask yourself the question, if God has forsaken me, why am I still here? And ask yourself this question, if God, if I, if God has forsaken me, why am I still thinking about Him? You see, if you were in hell, if you were really in hell, you couldn't remember God. You couldn't think about Him. You couldn't pray to Him. And if you can remember Him, even if you are in hell, if you can remember Him and pray to Him, hell can't be hell. Because even where the presence of the name of God is, if even if, that, if the only thing it is in you is to complain, if even the presence of the name of God is there, hell can't be there. That's how powerful His name is. God, you're still God. And unless, unless we are just in hell, then God, we're asking, restore us. You can ask that. That's okay. You've been listening to the last of 10 episodes covering the prophetic life and writings of Jeremiah. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.